0: Today. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. When we seek an example of great leadership, one man who often comes to mind is Winston Churchill, the iconic visionary prime minister who guided his country through war and stood firmly for his beliefs and impervious to his critics. But how did Winston become the legendary British bulldog? My guest today seeks to answer that question in his biography, Churchill Walking with Destiny. His name is Andrew Roberts, he's a journalist and historian, and we begin our conversation discussing why he thought another Churchill biography was needed. We then shift to the life of Churchill, beginning with a childhood in which young Winston often felt neglected. Andrew then discusses Churchill's military career, why Winston was so eager to see action on the front lines, and how he parlayed those experiences into becoming the world's highest paid journalist by his mid-twenties. Andrew then explains how Churchill also became one of the 20th century's great historians, and how his appreciation for history and sentimental outlook colored his worldview and shaped his leadership. We also Discuss why Churchill is one of the few leaders to foresee the threat that Hitler posed, and we end our conversation discussing whether some of the current criticisms of Churchill, such as the allegation that he masterminded genocide in India, really hold weight. After the show's over, check out our show notes at AOM.is Churchill. Andrew joins me now by phone. Okay, Andrew Roberts, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. So you have a new biography out about Winston Churchill, Churchill walking with destiny. Now, Churchill is probably one of the most written about individuals of the 20th century. Why, why do you think the time was right for a new biography about him?
1: You're right. There are no fewer than 1,009 biographies of Winston Churchill. Um, so it's, a, uh, it's, it's perfectly reasonable to ask why on earth the public needs a new one. The answer is that in the last decade, there have been an avalanche of new sources on Winston Churchill that have become available. I was the first Churchill biographer ever to be allowed to see the Queen's father's diaries. King George VI met Churchill every week of the war, on a Tuesday at lunchtime, and and, and wrote down everything that the Prime Minister told him. Also, there have been 41 sets of papers from different people that have been deposited at the Churchill archives in Cambridge over the last uh, 10 years. And they've also been various very important diaries, for example, Ivan Maisky, the Russian ambassador that's been published, and uh, and other things like that, the Batum accounts of the War Cabinet. So all in all, actually, there is easily enough to write a book like this one does that has something on every page that has appeared in no Churchill biography before.
0: So new information, new insights gives greater context. Right. So, so let's start with about Churchill, because I think most of us know him as the, the scowling, bald guy during World War II, but he's his his whole entire life was incredible. Let's start with his, his childhood. What was that like, and how did that influence the leader that he would become during World War II?
1: Well, he had a pretty unhappy childhood, really. His father and mother were very busy people, and his father was Chancellor of the Exchequer uh, in the British government, and his mother was a hugely popular uh, high society socialite. And although they were successful in their own fields, they had no time really for their son Winston or Winston's younger brother Jack, who as a result were, were very badly neglected. And you can see in their letters the, uh, the desire for love and attention that really didn't get given to, to either of them. And in Winston's case, where his father was actually unpleasant to him, actively disdainful and aloof and, and unpleasant. His response was actually the counterintuitive one, which was to adore his father, worship him, and especially after his death in 1895, when Churchill was 20 years old. And he sought to emulate his, his father, and it was the major reason for him to go into
0: politics. Yeah, the letters were heartbreaking that he would write when he was at boarding school. I think there was one letter, His his father was just like two miles away, and Winston was like please come visit me i want to see you and his dad didn't re- didn't even respond to him
1: i know again and again and then and worse than that they actually complained that churchill was you know being needy and, and not writing when it, in fact it was them who didn't write and churchill who wrote letter after letter begging them to show him some some interest and visit him
0: and what's also interesting even as a young man as a teenager churchill felt he was destined, you know. The book's called "Walking with Destiny." He felt he was destined for greatness. Why did Why did he think he was destined for greatness?
1: Yes, I think in in uh, what would be almost a psychological disorder in other people it was uh, certainly a very powerful influence on him. This idea that he would, as he told a sixteen year old, when he was a sixteen year old schoolboy, told another sixteen year old schoolboy, his friend at Harrow, Merlin Evans, said to him. Um, there will be a great upheaval and a terrible struggle in my life, and I will be called upon to save London and save britain and of course i mean that's a that's an extraordinary thing to say age sixteen, but half a century later, precisely that happened
0: so he went to boarding schools as a young man or as a as a boy. After that, he went to military school and he had a military career. Uh, what was his military career like as a young man?
1: Well, as you say, he went to the Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst. So that was his university, really. And then he went off to fight on the northwest frontier of India against the various tribes that, that attacked the British Empire up in the north there, attempting to attack the Punjab. And he went off to Cuba to watch the Spanish put down the uprising or attempt to put down the uprising of the Cuban rebels. In 1895, he went to South Africa and to the Sudan. And in fact, he fought in five campaigns on four continents before he entered politics.
0: And one thing about him is like, not only did he go to these places, but he wanted to see action. Like he wanted to be where the danger is at. Why was he so eager for that?
1: I think not so much that he wanted to be where the danger was, but where whatever it was that was important was happening. He wanted to see for himself whatever was going on. And that, of course, in a military career, did mean where the danger was. But also in his political career, he tended to uh, to want to be wherever it was that the most important thing was happening. So it wasn't that he was, as some people have charged... A uh, sort of danger junkie who wanted to who got excitement from the um, from bullets flying. He just wanted to make sure that he was actually on the spot of uh, whatever was most important that was going on, which um, eventually made him actually the world's best-paid war correspondent.
0: Yeah, even like, as a twenty-year-old, that's he went to South Africa for the Boer Wars not to fight but to report on it.
1: That's right. Yes, uh, it's was, it was extraordinary, really, the way in which he was able to do both in a sense. He was an officer in the British Army. There was no doubt which side he was on when uh, his train was ambushed by commandos. He, uh, of course, took the command of the men there on the ambush train and and managed to get part of it back through uh, enemy lines. And so there was no doubt that he was, first and foremost, a soldier, but one who would then write about Everything that um, that was going on, it was an interesting thing that was even then fairly unusual and today totally unknown
0: but when he also wrote about war, he often tended i mean some people would say he romanticized it and that he was kind of a war Do you think that claim or that criticism holds true or has any water
1: i don 't think it does at all. He actually did come to the sharp end of war. He saw men uh, just like uh, at the end of the Battle of Omdurman where he took part in the last great cavalry charge of the British Empire with the with the dead and wounded strewn over thousands upon thousands of them strewn over the battlefield and so he uh, he knew the the horrors of war and, and knew them up close but there's no denying that he found it much more exciting than peacetime and so it wasn't as I said earlier about uh, about his his general attitude that he was a, a sort of um attention seeking junkie he was somebody who really appreciated that in war if you're going to write about it you need to be up close and personal
0: so yeah by the time he was 25 he had fought in various campaigns around the world became one of the highest paid war correspondents in the world I'm all before 25 so that can make you feel really bad about yourself because like, when i was 25 i think i was in law school <laughs> that was it no it was, worse.
1: no it was worse for me i was working in the city i was a i was a, a merchant banker investment banker and uh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this guy—the <laughs> things that he had achieved already by the time of 25—and he would, say, and he said that in his wonderful autobiography, *My Early Life*. He said, "20 to 25—those are the years. Those are the years that you can can really get down to uh, to taking risks, and no one will blame you for mistakes." and it's A wonderful um, series of phrases that he comes out with in his book.
0: So another thing people don't know about Churchill, besides his political career, is that he was actually one of the most notable historians of the 20th century. Like he was a prolific writer. Where did he learn his craft? Was he formally educated in history?
1: No, he wasn't actually. He, uh, I mean he he wasn't that. He went to uh, Harrow School, which was good, and uh, and there were good history teachers there. But um, he didn't take that beyond school age, and yet he wrote 37 books, many of which were history books and, and biographies. It was his passion. He, he after making his living uh, by his pen as a war correspondent, as we mentioned earlier, because his father didn't leave him very much money and he had to take care of his brother and his mother, he, he wrote and one of the things that he is always interested in and dri- driving emotional force in his life was his sense of history. And so he wrote history books and he won the Nobel Prize for Literature for them.
0: And how do you think his uh, appreciation for history shaped his outlook on his life? I mean, did it make him like this sort of staunch reactionary traditionalist or was it something else that happened?
1: Well, no, he, I mean, first of all, he wasn't a staunch reactionary traditionalist until later on in his career. He crossed the... Floor of the House of Commons in 1904 became a liberal and was one of the founders of the British welfare state with uh, David Lloyd George. But what it did do was to allow him to see various threats to Britain in their overall historical context, and so that was why he was one of the reasons why he was one of the only people, certainly the first person in British politics to warn against the threat posed by Hitler and the Nazis because he saw the attempted hegemonization of Europe as something that was in the long continuum of British history, going back to the Spanish Armada and uh, Louis Fourteenth and Napoleon and so on. And so this was an essential prerequisite, really, for his being able to place the Nazi threat in the correct historical context.
0: And it also seemed like uh, the way you described it throughout the book is that his, his love of history in the past allowed him to be very forward-thinking at the same time.
1: That's right, yes, he, he was. Uh, another example will come, of course, after the Second World War, when he was the first person in the West, of any note, to warn against the Soviet threat, the, um, the danger posed by Stalinism to Eastern Europe, indeed to the whole of Europe and that speech that he made in Fulton Missouri in March 1946 was deeply unpopular and he was accused of being a warmonger and denounced in the press and in both congress and parliament and so on but uh, actually showed tremendous foresight.
0: Another thing, his appreciation for history and his knowledge, his thorough knowledge of, of British history, that came to be very helpful during World War II because it seemed like he'd fall back on that as he was trying to mobilize and keep the British people together during you know, all the bombings and the, sort of the threat of Nazism coming to them.
1: Yes, very true. He certainly did. He would talk about the Spanish Armada and about drake and about admiral nelson and the dangers to britain back in the napoleonic wars and and he would therefore use history as a way of basically telling the british people that you've been here before there have been threats of invasion in the past this is how we dealt with it this is what we do and we came through and we will win and so he used history very powerfully as a way of bolstering morale and fighting demoralization
0: we're going to take a quick break for your words from our sponsors When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. And now back to the show. Was Churchill a a religious man? Like, did he have that as sort of a bedrock for, you know, because he seems so steadfast? Was religion that that sort of bedrock for him? Was it something else?
1: He, um, it wasn't really religion, no. He um, was, he believed in an Almighty, but when you look theologically at it, the sole duty of the Almighty seems to have been to look after Winston Churchill. Uh, <laughs> Churchill had many, many brushes with death in his life, uh, had many accidents where he nearly died, and he believed in what he called invisible wings that were beating over him and, and protecting him. But he was, was not a uh, conventionally religious man in any way. In fact, he uh, described his relationship to the Church of England as being like that of the flying buttress, in that he supported the Church, but from the outside.
0: Some have described Churchill as sort of spiritual, but not religious in the sense that, as you said, he, he didn't go to church, but he still had a real capacity for wonder and a sense of the transcendent. I mean, he believed in absolute good and evil and the heroic clash between those forces. Um, I mean, he had a firm moral code, a bedrock of principles like honor, loyalty, and courage. And he, he would take time to contemplate. He would sit by his fireplace with chartwell, reflecting. He also seemed to have a different kind of faith as well, sort of faith in the British Empire.
1: Yes, he had a secular faith in the in the British Empire in a sense of also the sort of Whiggish progression of history. He believed that people were were moving forward i 'm not sure he felt that way after auschwitz and the, and the death camps were revealed i 'm not sure that he had this sense that that mankind was getting better very much after after that, but nonetheless, uh, for most of his life, he tended to believe in a in a general sense of, of human progress.
0: So Churchill, after the Boer War, he got elected to Parliament, he had a political career, and then uh, he was put in place as the First Lord of the Admiralty. But the, he made some blunders there. Can you talk about the, what those blunders were and how it affected his political career?
1: Yes. Well, as First Lord of the Admiralty, he was in charge of the Royal Navy. And he came up with this, uh, this idea, in many ways a genius concept, which was to get the Royal Navy through the Dardanelles Straits between Europe and Asia and moor it off uh, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, and basically knock Turkey, knock the Ottoman Empire, out of the central powers, which would have been a brilliant scheme if it had come off, one of the great coups of, the, of World War I. But unfortunately, as a result of some uh, mine laying the night before the, uh, the attack, we lost six ships in uh, the Allies, lost six ships on the day of the 18th of March, 1915. And it was catastrophic. And uh, instead of calling Hulking off, Churchill insisted on a land offensive on the European side, on the Gallipoli Peninsula, which ultimately led to the killing or wounding of no fewer than 147,000 Allied troops.
0: And what happened to his career after that, after that happened?
1: Well, he was forced to resign, was the, was the first thing that happened to it in uh, November 1915. But thereafter, even when he was brought back into the uh, government again, later in the First World War, every time he gave a speech at public meetings, someone would shout out, what about the Dardanelles? And this would carry on for another 15 longer uh, years of his career.
0: Was this the time that was known as Churchill's Wilderness Years?
1: The Wilderness Years actually started in 1930 when he resigned from the shadow cabinet, from the conservative shadow cabinet, and then spent 10 years warning against Hitler and the Nazis. But prior to that, he had a, a long period in government when he was chancellor of the Exchequer and minister of the colonies and various other important posts like that, up to the Conservatives' defeat in the 1929 general election.
0: Well, how did those mistakes he made that, that happened in World War I, the Dardanelles, how did that set him up for success during World War Two? Did he learn from that experience? He did learn, yes. No, exactly. He made terrible mistakes in his life. You know, I don't want for a moment
1: to think anybody to think that uh, Churchill was not a deeply flawed individual. He certainly was, and he made a series of mistakes. He made a mistake as Chancellor of the Exchequer in uh, going on to the gold standard at the wrong time, at the wrong price in 1925. He got women's suffrage wrong. He got the abdication wrong. He got the Darganels, as I mentioned earlier, very badly wrong. You know, this is not a man who got everything right in his career by any means. However, He was a politician who learned from his mistakes. And to pick up the one that you mentioned, the Dardanelles, he never once overruled the British chiefs of staff during the Second World War. So even though constitutionally he could as minister of defense, he actually never once did that. And that was the great message that he he took, the great lesson that he learned from that catastrophe.
0: So we mentioned that Churchill was one of the few people who saw the dangers of Nazism when it started coming to rise and his his appreciation for history, his knowledge of history allowed him to do that, but what other, did he have like any personal experience where he you know, gave him an almost an unshakable belief that Hitler had ambitions to conquer Europe? Yes, Churchill,
1: as well as being a historian and seeing Nazism as it's, uh, as an historical threat in terms of the past, Churchill also was a Philo-Semite. He liked Jews. He, he got on with Jews personally, grown up with them. His father had liked Jews. He uh, represented Jewish constituents. He, he was a Zionist uh, supporter of the Balfour Declaration. And so, of course, he had an early warning system for the evils of, of the Nazis and, and Adolf Hitler far earlier on than a lot of the other people sitting on the benches with him, of his age and, and class and background in Britain uh, at that time, many of whom were anti Semitic. And so, that was another of, of the ways that his sort of personal beliefs and background allowed him to be the first major. British politician to warn against what
0: was happening. And he was also one of the few leaders who actually read Hitler's Mein Kampf. And he tried to tell people, okay, look, he says right here in the book what he plans on doing. And I think another thing you mentioned too was when he was working in India, like he saw like jihadis, like he saw jihadist extremists.
1: Yes, yes. Well, not just India, also, of course, the Sudanese campaign uh, where he was fighting against the forces of the caliphate. All of the drive, really, of the Caliphate's army came down to Islamic fundamentalist fanaticism, and so you had these, this sense that he, um, both in in India and Africa, came up very close and personal to the fanaticism, in this case religious fanaticism, of course, but a fanaticism that he was to spot again. Thirty years later, in Hitler and
0: hit from the Nazis. So, one thing that that happened throughout Churchill's life is that he always got pushback. He was always getting criticized. He was described as a pusher, something you didn't do, right? You didn't, you 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 weren't supposed to be publicly ambitious, right? But then yeah, all, and, no, exactly. <laughs> and then, but also, he got criticized for all the things he did. But it didn't seem to faze him all that much. What was it about Churchill's character or past you know, experience in life that allowed him just to be so stoic in the face of so much criticism thrown at him?
1: Well, I, I'm, I, I've got a rather politically incorrect response to that, really, which is that I know it's tremendously bad to, be, uh, to have a sense of entitlement in uh, public life today, but he was tremendously entitled. He was the son, well, the grandson of the duke. He'd been born in a palace at the very apex of Victorian society and which he considered to be the the greatest society up until that point in the history of the world. So, he really didn't care terribly totally much what other people thought of him, which, of course, is not always very good in democratic politics. But boy, did he need that in the decade of the wilderness years in the 1930s, when he was shouted down in the House of Commons, decried, nearly he nearly had his seat taken away from him by the Conservatives. He was attacked in the press constantly. He had a, a thick skin, partly down to his extremely in sort of grand backgrounds that allowed him not to care what other people thought of him.
0: Yeah, There's a picture in the book of him when he was seven and he looks like, like an aristocrat, even at seven years old.
1: <laughs> I know that way that is, he's, he's got a, he's got his hand on his hip and, uh, and his, uh, his nose it, pointed up. Yes, and he, exactly. And he's he's seven years old, and he and he might as well be a duke himself.
0: <laughs> so yeah, he didn't have that middle class, you know, status anxiety. He wasn't worried about his place. He just he knew what his place was, and he just just kept on buggering on.
1: Precisely that. Yes, there wasn't a there wasn't a middle class bone in his body, and he knew it.
0: But here's the interesting thing, like, he was an aristocrat, but he wasn't a snob.
1: No, no, he, uh, he didn't have any snobbishness that I was able to spot in four years of, of reading his papers and his letters and, uh, and all that. He, and, and actually, when you look at his friends, although, although two of them admittedly were dukes, the next sort of seven or eight of his closest friends were lower middle class, came from, from very humble backgrounds, some of them, and he treated them absolutely precisely the same as, uh, as people who were born to the purple.
0: So an, uh, an important person in Churchill's life was his wife, Clementine. What role did his wife play in his career throughout his life? She was very important, actually. Uh, he didn't
1: take political advice very well from, uh, from most people, but he would take it from Clementine. He had this sense that she was only interested in his best interests, unlike some other politicians and other advisors, and um, and so that gave her a special imprimatur, and her advice was usually very good, in fact. He was somebody who loved his wife very dearly and was, and was faithful to her, and, and they had a, a, a very happy marriage, but he also respected her um, political opinions, although he did not ask her about grand strategy or, or uh, you know, take her advice on, or even ask for her advice, and she certainly never gave her advice on, on sort of military matters or anything like
0: that. But speaking of Churchill's family life, he did have four children. How, what was his relationship like with them? Like, was it, did he replicate the, what happened with him and his father, or was it, did he try to do something different?
1: Sadly, he did, he did to an extent replicate what happened with his father. Um, he had a, a terrible relationship with his son, Randolph. He nonetheless called after his father, who was a heavy drinker. And was not, had none of the charm of his father, some of the brilliant intellect of his father, but uh, they had endless rows. He loved he loved him, but it, very soon after they got together, on every occasion, pretty much there would be a a bad tempered spat. So it wasn't it wasn't very happy. One of his daughters died um, very young, and that was a tragedy for the both of the parents. And then there were two other. Daughters, who sorry, three other daughters, two of whom died early, one as a result of suicide, and the other as a result of drinking. So it was not a uh, it was not uniformly happy. The, the other daughter, Mary Soames, lived to a lovely, happy old age and was personally completely delightful. But uh, but no, overall, it's very difficult to be the the son or daughter of a great man. And although he himself pulled it off, his children didn't.
0: Yeah, I've seen that in other the lives of other great men like Theodore Roosevelt, who is very much like Winston Churchill, as I was reading this, had very similar lives. But his family life, his kids had a lot of problems as well.
1: That's right. It's not easy, is it? You see it again and again in, in history that uh, so much is expected. And if the child can't live up to that, then it's often um, uh, in, in some form of self-destruction that the whole um, sort of process pans out.
0: Yeah. I, I'm speaking of Theodore Roosevelt. I'm a big fan of him. And as I was reading this, I was like, the, their lives were very similar. Both were sort of aristocrat. I mean, Churchill was obviously an aristocrat. Roosevelt was sort of a scion of New York, but they both had that same temperament of wanting to be in the you know, scene, the action, wanting to be where everything's at. Both uh, literary men as well. Both became great leaders of their country. Uh, did these two ever cross paths? When, uh- yes,
1: they met once and they didn't get on. And, um, <laughs> and when... Uh, and when um, Theodore Roosevelt's daughter Alice was asked why, he said, oh, they're far too alike. And uh, I think there's something in that. I think that might well have been the reason. I think they spotted uh, that, uh, that they were very alike, and, and as a result, that they clashed rather than uh, became firm friends.
0: So the popular image of Churchill is a sort of scowling, no-nonsense man wearing a bowler, chomping on a cigar. But the Churchill that emerges in your book is very emotional. He's funny. And he's full of life. Um, he was also imaginative, sometimes had premonitions about things, and it allowed intuition to guide his decisions. So, I mean, he seemed to really feel things deeply. How do you think Churchill's sentimentalism and romantic outlook helped him as a leader?
1: Well, he was. Look, precisely, you're right. He was driven by his passions um, to an extraordinary degree. And he burst into tears 50 times during the Second World War, for example. Um, which must have been quite off-putting to see the Prime Minister in the House of Commons starting to cry. But nonetheless, people recognized that he wasn't the the buttoned-up Victorian aristocrat. He was actually a sort of throwback to an earlier era, the romantic uh, Regency figure, where people did wear their hearts on their sleeves. They didn't mind showing their emotions in public.
0: So in recent years there's been a lot of criticisms lobbed at Churchill, like he was a racist, that he tried to commit genocide in India during World War II, that he was the mastermind behind the Dresden bombings. Are there, I mean, based on this new information you've gotten, are there, is there much validity to these criticisms? I don't think there is really, no, not when it's seen in its proper
1: historical context. Churchill was uh, at school while Charles Darwin was still alive, and people did believe that there were hierarchies of races in those days however absurd and indeed obscene we might think that today, at the time, it was considered an actual scientific fact. And um, what he took from that was actually the exact opposite of what Hitler and the Nazis took from it, which was that he believed that the British had a profound responsibility and duty to the people, the native peoples of the empire. Um, And that's what he dedicated his life to. So uh, I see this criticism of him in some way encouraging uh, genocide at the time of the Bengal famine as being absolutely. Uh, well as well as factually incorrect also completely the opposite of what Winston Churchill was trying to do in fact when you look at his letters to President Roosevelt asking for, for wheat and, and grain to be sent to India, not just Re- Roosevelt as well, the Prime Ministers of Australia and Canada as well, he wouldn't be doing that if he was a genocidal maniac he did everything that was possible at the time to save the Bengali, the starving Bengalis but of course with the normal places that were un- grain in these circumstances, such as Burma and Thailand and Malaya, under Japanese occupation. It was next to impossible to um, get grain in overseas. These are perfectly reasonable um, responses, I think, to a totally unreasonable, ahistorical series of attacks on him. With regard to the the bombing of Dresden, which I go into in some detail in my book, the fact is that the railway nodal points from east to west went through Dresden, and Dresden, the Russians begged us to uh, to destroy these, and we did the best we possibly could on the night of the 13th of February 1945, Um, The reason that so many people died in Dresden, and by the way, it was about 20,000, not the 120 that uh, the Nazis claimed, which unfortunately some ex-historians like David Irving also propound. The reason, nevertheless, that 20,000 people died was that the local Gauleiter of Dresden didn't provide proper air raid precautions in the city, not thinking that it was ever going to be hit, But, but it was hit, and it was a perfectly reasonable and legitimate
0: military target. So, you know, Churchill became a great leader during World War II. Do you think he was born a great leader? Or did he fashion himself into one?
1: He very much fashioned himself into one. He went out very deliberately as a young man to become a great man. And, um, and you see this again and again in the early chapters, I think, of, of my book, he he felt that he was walking with destiny, but it was very much a destiny that he was going to fashion himself.
0: I mean, what do you think are the leadership lessons people could take today from the life of Churchill?
1: Oh, there are so many. There are some on pretty much every page. His foresight, which we've gone into, his personal courage and both physical and moral, his ability to learn from lessons, his sheer resilience coming back from disaster after disaster really
0: well andrew this has been a great conversation where can people go to learn more about the book
1: well the first place i'd like them to go to obviously is their local independent bookshop <laughs> or amazon but there are the reviews are on my website www.andrew-roberts.net um, but uh, but really the best thing if you want to know more about winston churchill is to uh, is to get the book
0: well, Andrew Roberts, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a
1: delight. Thank you very much indeed.
0: My guest today was Andrew Roberts. He's the author of the book, Churchill Walking with Destiny. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, andrew-roberts.net, or check out our show notes at aom.is slash Churchill, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years, including an in-depth series about life lessons from Winston Churchill, artofmanliness.com. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, use code MANLINESS, you can sign up for a month free trial, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS, and start enjoying ad-free episodes of the Art of Manliness podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher it helps out a lot and if you've done that already thank you please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the A-Win Podcast but put what you've heard into action